4: Welcome to Country Life, I'm Justin Gregory. Great to have your
1: company, I'm Duncan Smith. Today we meet a young farmer and her dog, Sass, who are taking part in this year's Cobber Dog Challenge.
4: We've got front row seats at the Port Angahou Sports Club for the end of season celebrations. And in Nelson, a farmer who
1: swapped his cattle for butterflies has been winging it ever
4: since. And will industrial hemp farming take off in Karamea? We'll find out later. But first to a roundup of the week's news. And Fonterra's made a record profit. Yep, 1.6 billion dollars for the year to July. The co-op also announced a final milk price of $8.22 a kilogram of milk solids for the last season. Federated Farmers dairy chair Richard McIntyre told us the result is positive and in line with what farmers were expecting. But Northlander Jeff Crawford, who has 3 dairy farms around Hikorangi, says it's not enough to help farmers struggling with high levels of debt.
3: At 8.22, we're, we're only just, you know, paddling against the current. It's not paying any debt off. We're only just in survival mode. Going forward, I dare say we're looking like well, it'll cost us a dollar a milk solid that we'll probably have to put onto the overdraft and hopefully the, we can farm our way out of it for the next season.
1: And the wine sector is trying to make use of its byproduct.
4: Yeah, researchers at the University of Auckland want to find a use for grape mark, which is the stems, the skins and the seeds. The programme lead, Professor Paul Kilmartin, told us it could be a significant resource, but at the moment it's just being wasted.
2: So a problem component at the moment, particularly for our big wine regions, we're looking to develop new higher value products that could add value and make it economic to to actually... Process that grape mark into more valuable compounds.
4: Professor Kilmartin says grape mark could be used in food, paper, pharmaceutical, building or chemical products. Interesting. And it's mental health week. So what's the message for farmers? Rural commentator and mental health advocate Craig Wiggy Wiggins says it's a tough time on the farm at the moment, but the days are getting longer and warmer, so farmers should take a break and enjoy it.
3: Maybe we can't afford the trip to Rarotonga or the new vehicle or whatever you think that you might have wanted in this cycle coming forward, but just do what you can do. Like I always say if you could just take five minutes out of your day, and or maybe just take your family to, to the most favourite spot on your farm and, and set up a picnic.
4: Craig Wiggins says there's plenty of resources available to farmers, so they should make use of them. Now,
1: a far north strawberry grower has had to diversify their crops.
4: Yeah, that's because there's a shortage of strawberry plants this year. Kaikohe Berries' general manager, Todd Jackson, explains what they're doing to get around the shortage.
1: It is hurting us from a, a return on investment perspective, making it challenging, but more so we were geared up and really excited to grow 10 hectares of strawberries, so we've got a We've got to wait another year now for for that to happen. So what we have done is filled the remaining sort of six or seven hectares with seasonal vegetables, bok choy, pak choy, beetroot, cos lettuce that we're supplying uh, to Northlanders and, and New Zealanders over the summer.
4: Todd Jackson says due to the shortage of strawberry plants, prices will be higher this summer. So maybe a good time to start thinking about what else you can put on your Christmas pav this year.
1: (laughs) Ah, raspberries every time. You're listening to Country Life on RNZ National, 101FM. If you head north from Wellington on State Highway 2 and turn right at Waipukuro towards the rolling hill country of Central Hawke's Bay you'll eventually come to a small coastal town called Porangaho. It's tucked away behind the beach, and like many a small farming community in Aotearoa, sport is central to the community. Maggie Tweedy took a trip there to find out more.
5: Porangahoe has a sports club that is the envy of many in Hawke's Bay, and the annual sports prize giving in the local club rooms is a chance to find out just how much sport means to the community. Local farmer, Baden Anderson, is looking forward to the night.
2: So you we've got our rugby team and then five uh, netball teams, so yeah, I'd say it'll be pretty big, might get messy.
5: Is that a, a big annual event for everyone? Is it kind
2: of a bit of a morale booster as well? Yeah, it's probably coming at a pretty good time. Everyone's lambing and carving and that, or some people at the start of it, some people halfway through, so it is a pretty big event, really, get off farm for a night, celebrate the year's success.
5: Fewer than 200 people live in Porongahoe, but you'd be forgiven for thinking there are more. Many locals from across central Hawke's Bay will take an hour to travel to the club rooms on a Friday or Saturday night. With plates full of food and beer pouring, it's a great place to catch up and be social. The walls are decorated with community sponsors who donate thousands annually to keep the club facilities open for everyone. Nestled in the corner are packets of nappies and tinned food. Symbols of the tough time the community faced at the beginning of the year, when the Purongaho River flooded during Cyclone Gabriel.
2: And sort of Gabriel coming through It was pretty good to be around the boys uh, once a week for trainings. We we're only pre-season then, and joining up together to help the community out. Now the rugby club's huge for this community. It's certainly good to get down there and hook and do a bit of refreshments and that. What position do you play? Oh, if I see here, front row all day. <laughs>
5: Nights like this are an important time to reflect on how the locals have come out the other side of events like Gabriel. Here's club chairman Andy Barrett speaking to an army of supporters dressed in the team colours of black and green.
6: What a great year of our um, sport. Uh, you know, you guys represent our little remote club. We, we're trying to build a, a good culture out here and it's all about the people involved. As far as um, from a committee perspective and a club perspective, we really want to thank all of you for. One, we're in the green and black and representing our club and, um, you know, fulfilling what, I suppose, as a committee, what we're trying to do, Um, you know, we're trying to endeavour a little bit of progression out here, we're trying to endeavour some bit of unity, community, and by big numbers like we've got, it's um, certainly happening, so um, really proud. Really proud to be in a position I'm in to be able to stand up here and, and say that to such a good crew. So um, thanks to all the players. Clap, clap, yeah.
5: Back in the clubroom kitchen, the Kurufano and a group of local wahine are busy preparing a feast for all the supporters. Parihaka are one of the few clubs that not only feed the players but also the supporters every game. It's a way to keep people at the games. Come on! One of those acknowledged tonight is John Rezma, or Rezzy, who's presented with a blazer for managing the rugby team. Here are the players honouring him with haka. A focus in this evening's speeches is encouraging the young players, thanking the volunteers and acknowledging all those that return year after year. While the team breaks for refreshments, I duck outside to talk to Shay Anderson, a local teacher, head of the netball club Mumta 3 Tamariki, and wife of Baden-Anderson. I asked her about her love of CHB. You
6: had the opportunity to come to CHB and just loved the authenticity of it, like it was a bit of everyone, there was a farmer's kid, there was a lawyer's kid, there was uh, the mob member kid, there was just everything and everything in between and just fell in love that this is what life was about, like it was about everyone, not just one particular demographic or anything. My husband now was at Smedley at the time and he got offered
5: a job opportunity so that's kind of how I ended up Yeah. I've heard tonight yeah. a lot from all the people around you in this village that you give a lot back. Can you tell me about the work that you do to help community sports thrive here? Where I've thrived
6: in life has been part of sports teams, been active and been involved in communities. Um, so I guess my underlying love is sport, husband plays rugby, kid's life keeps you busy and if you don't get out you kind of get cloned in your own little world yeah anyone who's been part of a team will understand like just the good vibes the good feels of you know having that sense of belonging Um, being involved being active it just yeah does wonders for the brain does wonders for the health and the sacrifices you make to make it happen yeah they're tough at times
5: but it's Reaps reaps the rewards the outcomes at the end. There's a real growth in the uptake of sport particularly in netball in Porongahou and what do you put that down to why is it thriving so much here and that sounds like it's been um, a lot to do with some of the hard work of volunteers like yourself. Every
6: member of the the netball teams here has some connection back to Porongahou. You're coaching the team the premier side this year the buzz, the environment—it's just awesome. Like, yeah, just good vibes. People are honest. We have such honest conversations, but we're here for each other, not just on the court. Personal lives, marriage breakups, whatever it is, everyone's kind of just just there to offer everyone along and just has
5: everyone's back. Your neighbours rurally are people sometimes 15 kilometres away from you, so it's a good way to connect back with each other. Finally, we are here tonight at giving, and we're outside and it's absolutely freezing. <laughs> if we were inside we probably wouldn't get much of an interview, but um, tell me about tonight and why it's so important um, and about some of the people and some of the characters inside. It's just as much as it's about our players, it's about
6: our supporters and our community. Our rugby team making this, the final at McLean Park for the second year in a row. The grandstand was packed green and black for Ho, not only for us, from us, but from our wider community supporting us. Our netball premier team making our local club final competition again lines packed. And so it's about recognising the support of our community. Parents that drive their kids to trainings and games every week are our scorers, are our managers and people that don't even have like family members playing but just you know it's, it's just being part of that club, part of that community it's yeah it's massive. It's just about celebrating all of that.
5: And the kitchen staff are pretty incredible, <laughs> and they were acknowledged tonight as being absolute heroes of this community. Uh, and what do they do? Oh, nothing
6: like a kuru feed. The broccoli salad is a hit and well-known. From cooking Thursday night training feeds, never disappoints, and it's always a highlight of everyone's week. Um, I think we're well-known throughout Hawke's Bay. The rugby boys, the Saturday after game feeds, the hospitality our club offers is, is second to none.
1: Maggie Tweedy speaking to Shay Anderson about the thriving winter sports club in Porangaho in Central
4: Hawke's Bay. The farmer we're going to meet next pretty much lets his stock do their own thing. Now I should say former farmer, because Ian Knight used to produce and sell boxes of monarch butterflies for wedding day celebrations. The pandemic put a stop to big gatherings for a period, so Ian wound down that business. But the monarch butterflies are still a big passion of his, as Sally Round discovered when she visited his butterfly house in Hope near Nelson.
2: We're just going to head in now to the tunnel houses and our butterfly enclosure. I can see some
7: butterflies already over
2: there. Yes, there are monarchs just flying around Uh, free outside. Most of those will have uh, been released from here. Others uh, will have been just attracted because of the many swamp plants that are growing inside and outside of the tunnel houses.
7: Why is it important to have a flourishing monarch butterfly population? Oh, just
2: because they're so beautiful, <laughs> they They are just uh, gorgeous. Uh, they, they're the, the, the largest and most decorative butterfly that we have in New Zealand.
7: at those two. One is on the outside and one is on the inside and they're, they're almost kissing.
2: They they are doing the, the mating process through the netting. <laughs> Which is really quite Did weird. Did we just
7: witness that just then?
2: Uh, no, it didn't quite happen. Uh, they need a little bit, little bit more connection than that but uh, they were certainly um, considering it very seriously. Now we're going to go around this way, around these uh, big swan plants just here the pathway down beside the tunnel houses is uh, completely overgrown with swan plants that have grown from seeds from the last season's swans. Uh, This is why these plants are called swan plants because, uh, I just take that off there, you'll see that this uh, seed pod Looks like a swan's body and a swan's neck so curving up, and that's where it got its name from.
7: And the swan plant is important because it's the main food. This is for the, the
2: only food for the caterpillars for the um, monarch butterfly. These butterflies probably came to New Zealand first, wind blown from Australia, but somehow or other, swan plants came to New Zealand before the butterflies. And the best explanation that I've heard for that is that way back in the early whaling days the whalers who sailed on sailing ships down into the southern ocean to get um, whales for oil brought with them from the UK and, and Europe the seed pods of the swamp plants almost like dandelion fluff which they used for padding their jackets making pillows out of so the swamp plants were here before the butterflies came When I come into the tunnel house, particularly in the early morning when the the, the light's quite soft uh, and I see these butterflies flying around, uh, it reminds me that that's why I do this job because I just love having them flying around and uh, doing their natural thing. And even while we're talking, I saw a paper wasp fly past. (laughs) (laughs) That
7: must be Um, annoying
2: Yes, yes We'll get on to that in a moment Because they
7: are the big threat to to these butterflies Yes, they they? are, yes Um, Yes. Tell us first of all, why are you so interested in butterflies? Well,
2: from way back when our kids were little It was really cool to be able to show them uh, butterflies, caterpillars on the swan plants, things like that Uh, We always had swan plants around um, where we lived and uh, it developed from there. Uh, My youngest daughter was a marriage celebrant and she came home from a wedding that she'd conducted uh, one Saturday afternoon And she said, hey, Dad, I was at this wedding today and uh, the couple released some monarch butterflies. She said it was absolutely beautiful. It's the first time she'd experienced it. And uh, so she naturally uh, chatted to the the couple after the ceremony was over and um, found out that they had searched right throughout New Zealand and that there was only one supplier up in Auckland for the whole of the country. I had recently retired at that point. And so she said, you've been a, a bit of an entrepreneur. When we were kids, you always had swan plants around. She said, all you'd have to do is to um, to grow some swan plants, uh, put up a web, uh, website on the internet, and um, you can halve the monopoly that the guy in Auckland's got. So... Well, yes, I could try that. So you gave
7: it a go, and it <laughs> so started I, up a butterfly I farm. I did
2: in, in a in a house in suburbia. Um, I built a small enclosure alongside the house, under the eaves, uh, so that uh, when we looked out from our dining room window, we could see butterflies and caterpillars and doing their thing, and uh, and it grew from there. Then I built another enclosure and another, and one spring, probably three years into me growing growing lots of butterflies and and getting orders and sending them all around the country, I suddenly realised that, hey, now I'm the monopoly. (laughs) I've got the monopoly for all of New Zealand. Um, And the market's not big, I've got to say, you know. Um, There's not too many people who want to spend the kind of money that they have to to get butterflies couriered all around the countryside uh, to get to where they need to have their wedding. And some of those things have been really challenging. People people like to have weddings in lovely out-of-the-way places and getting the courier to to get them there at the right time and uh, in good condition is just diabolical. We've discovered from nature, with monarch butterflies, and probably other butterflies as well, that when it's cold and dark, as in winter, they simply go to sleep. And so uh, when I had an order to uh, to send out, uh, usually on a Friday afternoon for a Saturday wedding, I would gather anything from 2 to 10 to 20 in a netting cube cage, which I have for the purpose, Uh, take them inside and put them in the fridge first off, uh, just to cool them down, Uh, and they would go to sleep in five to ten minutes. Then I could take them off to the bathroom, which is the coolest room in the house, Uh, and I would be able to, first of all, examine the wings to make sure that they're all in perfect condition, and then uh, put them into a um, release box, and then pack it in a polystyrene box with some chiller packs. To keep the temperature cold enough for them to be comfortable and sleeping uh, in their journey to their destination. Courier would come mid afternoon on a Friday or any day that we were sending butterflies away and uh, take them away, and they pretty much guaranteed that they would have butterflies to their destination by 10 o'clock the next morning. See, I I would produce um, probably three to four thousand butterflies in any season. Uh, I would sell. A few hundred. Um, The rest were just let go.
7: Some people might think that it's not a great idea to farm butterflies. I mean, what happens when you release all those butterflies? Are their lives shorter?
2: No, not no. In fact, um, I think they they benefit from growing um, in enclosures like this. Figures that I've heard are that in nature, only 5% of all eggs that are laid by adult butterflies uh, will make it through the life cycle to become adult butterflies themselves. I believe that that in my safe space, the percentage is more like 95% success rate. When I had um, four tunnel houses, I had them separated, but now I've got one and. A half um, tunnel houses where the the whole process takes place. So uh, in the springtime, we actually um, went out with a net and caught a couple of wild overwintered uh, butterflies. Brought them in here to lay a few eggs, uh, and then that process has carried on since then. They went the eggs hatched out into butterflies, into caterpillars. The caterpillars grew, uh, turned into chrysalises. The chrysalises hatched out uh, into butterflies, and then those butterflies in turn started laying eggs and following the process on.
7: I can see hanging from the netting and from the tubes holding up the netting all these little chrysalises, chrysalises.
2: and they are so fascinating um, you see the gold rim around the, the, the shoulder if you like of, of the, the chrysalis um, it's, it's very decorative, very distinctive it and is. it's sort of glittering like gold yes Research out of the States has shown that each of those uh, gold dots is actually an air vent. It allows air in for the development of the embryo butterfly inside of the chrysalis. So they can open and close them to allow air in, but not to allow anything else that would destroy that process. Sally, over here on the uh, frame of of the tunnel house, there's a caterpillar hanging upside down in a J-shape. That's very characteristic of uh, monarch butterflies. Hanging from their back feet, uh, attached to the silk that they have uh, woven a little button, they'll hang there until they feel ready to uh, shed their skin for the last time. Looking in that same spot, you can see uh, several empty chrysalis shells that, again, when they've burst out of there in their butterfly state... Their wings are almost like a parachute, all packed down very tightly, and their body is quite plump, and their first job uh, when they come out of the chrysalis is that they have to pump body fluids from their body out to fill up the wings, the veins in the wings, to uh, show these, these beautiful the markings, uh, markings on, are on, beautiful, on the, aren't the they? butterfly, yeah.
7: Are they all different, the markings?
2: There, there, are, there are minor differences, but, but the, the main characteristics are the same through and through. The only difference with uh, the male butterflies and the female butterflies is a couple of dark spots and if I can locate a butterfly which just conveniently is right here in front of me uh, these are two boys actually. See those dark spots on that vein at the back? Mm -hmm. That's the male pheromone gland and uh, basically all the boys have to do is flutter their wings And the girls will come flying from miles around, attracted by the pheromones, and then, um, yeah, they do their thing. So um, often at the beginning, particularly at the beginning of the the season, in um, parks, you'll see butterflies flying over um, gardens in the park, uh, flower gardens, and they're, they're patrolling, waiting for a female to turn up. They know they're going to come, and so they're just waiting to pounce, and they're into it.
7: Why are people so fascinated by butterflies, do you think?
2: Uh, I'm sure that it has a lot to do with the sense of transformation that takes place from the caterpillar to the butterfly. Uh, it talks about new life uh, when the butterflies hatch out. And so when, when people are releasing butterflies, usually the celebrant says some nice things about um, the couple starting a new phase of their life together uh, and symbolised by these butterflies being released and flying away and doing their thing.
7: What are the greatest threats to them?
2: There are a number of predators. Uh, things like uh, ants. Ants mistake the eggs for their own eggs and carry them off. Um, Spiders, find them to be a yummy sort of a snack. (laughs) Um, Praying mantises, much as I love praying mantises, they eat the small caterpillars. The the worst of all uh, would be the Asian paper wasps. The Asian paper wasps have Uh, progressively spread throughout the country, uh, first being introduced uh, in New Zealand, probably uh, piggybacking on shipping containers and and, uh, goods coming into the country. This is back before they were more stringently controlled at the border. Uh, And so they have naturalised in New Zealand and spread uh, further and further down through the North Island, made the, 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 um, the transition across Cook Strait to where we are and uh, have become more and more settled in Nelson region. They basically are taking the, the live protein from the caterpillars back to the nest to feed their babies. So they're just doing what they do naturally. It's just that if they hadn't been introduced into New Zealand accidentally, then we wouldn't have Anything like the issue that we do today with the paper wasps, but I, uh, even while we've been talking here, have seen paper wasps flying backwards and forwards outside. They know that there are caterpillars in here. They'll be looking for one. There's, there's a wasp right there. Yes. They'll be looking for a, a caterpillar that's climbing up, climbing up the the netting, uh, to to uh, make its chrysalis. And they will sting that caterpillar through the netting, and then uh, when it's immobilised, they'll just suck the insides out of it and take it off home to the babies.
7: That's gruesome and who's winning this war?
2: Well, um, I think that particularly in my uh, protective custody arrangement here, I'm winning because I can still produce hundreds of of butterflies uh, in this environment, whereas out in the natural environment, I've got swan plants growing uh, wild um, all around the property and From time to time I'll go looking to see if there are eggs being laid out there and sometimes I will see a few, sometimes I'll see tiny caterpillars, but I could go back two days later and they're gone. Um, The wasps have located them and just consumed them.
7: So what can be done about the wasps' situation?
2: Well, um, there are some um, university students who are um, doing some research on the subject. They have been instrumental in producing a bait which is very effective on the, the German wasps that we are, are very common up in the bush around the South Island, down the West Coast, uh, where their numbers have been very high. The, the scientists have told me that they have a, about a 95% kill rate in the, the wild nests. Uh, they haven't yet found a solution for the Asian paper wasps because they feed specifically on live bait. Invariably, people, when I talk to them and they they realise that I'm the the monarch butterfly man from out at Hope, they say, look, we haven't seen monarch butterflies for years. Uh, And it's because in the wild, the wasps are just decimating them. And left to their own devices, um, they would soon become endangered and then they would just be wiped out. Well, wow. Ian
4: Knight there, talking to Sally Round.
5: I'm Robin Green. I live at Tihoro Beach. And I have to say that Country Life is one of my favourite programmes. Country Life on RNZ National.
1: Three Kiwi farmers and their dogs are eagerly awaiting to hear how they've done in this year's Cobber Dog Challenge. The Trans-Tasman competition sees 12 dogs fitted with a GPS tracker to see how far and fast they travel over a three-month period, with the hardest-working dog being announced next month. Sally Murphy was at Coleridge Downs in Canterbury with Kelsey Meads and her dog, Sass, who've been taking part.
8: So the farm is right on the Rakai River and looks out over Mount Hutt, back of Mount Hutt, and... We run Sheep, Beef and Deer here. And sitting right beside you, we've got Sass. Where did she go? There she is. Tell me a little bit about Sass. How did you first come to get her and and what is she like? So I got Sass when she was three months old and got her from a guy in the Waikato. And she is a very small framed heading dog. And she probably weighs about 13 kgs, I would say. And yeah, she got to... A year old and just never never got any bigger. And I can't complain because she's super quick, and super fast. And, yeah, I love her to bits and she's basically a pet as well. And in a way I can't for, wait for her to retire so she can lay next to the fire. Because <laughs> <laughs> how old is she now? Uh, she's just turned four in July. So she's not too old. She's probably only about half the size of a normal heading dog, is she? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. So maybe, yeah, two-thirds potentially but yeah everybody loves her they always think she's a pup when they see her and she hasn't left your side since we arrived has she <laughs> no, no what's her personality like she is a very sassy dog hence the name sass of why i got her we we're only four or five months old she was trying to fight my main dog for the food and I was going to call her Rain, because when we were driving home after I picked her up, she was just staring up at the rain on the windscreen. And I had that in mind, but then when I saw how sassy she was, I was like, this don't think there's any other name for her. And tell me a bit about the competition. Why did you enter? Uh, I just entered just for the sake of it at the start, to see to see if what would happen, and I didn't think I'd actually get picked. And when I did, I was like a bit taken aback, but I'm, like, oh, I'm quite unlucky. I never get picked for anything. So... Um, yeah, it's just uh, this year. It's a little bit different than what it usually is. It's over 12 weeks instead of three, and so they you have this tracking collar, this big tracking collar, on that measures their distance, duration, and speed, and you rack up points. And I think it's the top 30 days, um, 30 days, maybe it's three weeks of the points that you get will contribute to the winning one at the end and yeah racked up quite a few years so I think she did like 42k which is a lot but I was set stocking so that's probably the biggest day we've had so far.
9: Yeah the collar's actually quite large isn't it she's got the collar around her neck with a big antenna on it so can you see
8: the results as they come in at the end of the day? I can see what she's done mm. but I don't know what it's comparing to to everyone else right, sort see. of thing so I don't really know where she is on the leaderboard.
9: Kelsey's keen to show me what Sass can do, so we head out onto the farm. Is it easy to replace dogs? Do you have a preferred breeder where you get them from?
8: No, it's definitely not easy to replace them, especially when you get so close to them, and they are your best mates. I've had a couple pass on me, one Tahi, she, I had her for four years and she died a twisted gut, came out in the morning and she was dead in the kennel so that wasn't very nice, a bit traumatic and another one, Greta, she, um, don't know what was wrong with her, she just ended up deteriorating and I had to get her put down because she wasn't eating and the vets couldn't tell me what was wrong with her, but it, it does take a bit to find the next dog like it takes me a while to um choose the next pup or the next dog that I want
9: so you've got like a little remote there is
8: that for her gps collar yep yep so you just um connect it each time that you start her back up and yeah it has a little map and it shows you where she is and how far away she is from you and how much she's already done. So she's only done two and a half, two point eight k today, but average speed of twelve point four three. Oh, interesting. So the GPS isn't on all the time. No, like it. Um, just when I'm travelling, it will say that she's going. 80k an hour so you've got to kind of turn it off when you're travelling they usually if they see discrepancies they'll take it off anyway if it doesn't seem realistic for a dog but um, yeah it's just easy just to hold that down and turn it off and then just reconnect it every time We've just pulled up to the paddock and there's some some
9: sheep and cattle up there and she's shaking is that because she's excited to get in there and work is she? Uh,
8: And she might be cold but most probably excited as well she uh, besides yesterday, she hasn't had much work for the last week. So. Sass heads
9: off and disappears up and over a ridge towards a mob of sheep. So what have you just told her to do?
8: To take her left.
9: Wow, she's quick. What's the top speed you've seen her do? I
8: think it was in the 50s. It was. 50k an hour? Yeah.
9: How many different commands would she know?
8: Quite a few. She's got uh, left, right, stop, walk up, steady and like a kick out for her to like go a little bit further. Oh well, here she comes, she's driving them down the hill. And you see how she kind of like stays out to the side. And so like say she's not directly behind the sheep because she's actually balancing off the sheep and knowing that that's like the natural instinct to stay on that side to bring them down rather than go directly in the middle of them and have them keep on trying to go out that way. Do all dogs do that? Uh, mo- probably most do um, ones that have the instinct to do that, mm. but one of the ones Tilly in there that um One that's half broken in, she does that, she won't go out to the side, she'll go directly behind them. Kelsey's passion for farming and her dogs is clear,
9: but she doesn't actually come from a farming background.
8: I did a couple of jobs after school and went to uni and that didn't kind of work out, so I decided to spend uh, my birthday weekend on a farm with my best mate that she'd gone to Telford and got into farming. And yeah, spent the weekend there, and I just absolutely loved it, and quit my job working at a security firm, working midnight till 8am, and um, decided this is what I want to do. And went and did a cadetship in Taupo, through um, Landcorp, and yeah, started farming from there and haven't haven't looked back. So before
9: that you had no interest... No relationship with
8: farming whatsoever? Uh, not farming, but like outdoorsy, hunting, firewood, that sort of stuff. My parents, all my dad's into that. We have a bush block in Taranaki. And, yeah, just always love the outdoors and hunting and never put farming into the equation. But now it is, and now I get to do it all.
1: Well, that was Kelsey Meads and her dog, Sass, who are taking part in this year's Cobber
4: Dog Challenge. Was that the dog having a little wah at the end of there?
1: <laughs> I think so. Yeah.
4: All right, now we're heading to the top of the west coast with Cosmo Kentish Barnes. He's at Little Wanganui with Jake Gibbons, who lives there with his wife, Kathy Blum. The couple have a licence to grow industrial hemp on their 100 hectare block, and at the moment they're doing cultivar and soil trials. Jake takes Cosmo to a couple of paddocks surrounded by native forest.
0: We call this the basin, Uh, an area that we're slowly developing but it's taken us five years to get it to a point where we can actually probably do something with it.
3: Yes what have you done to make these paddocks fertile? First off we cleared it it was all gorse back in the day so I'd say about
0: 14 foot tall impassable you couldn't even get in here so first thing I did was aerial spray it which may not be the thing that most people would like to hear but Mm -hmm. It was the only way to actually do it and then left it for 18 months and then came in with a 20-ton digger, pushed all that off to the edges, then cultivated the land itself. Our soils are very acidic and very thin. So what I've tried to do over the course of the last couple years is put in a cover crop of a mix of grasses and predominantly legumes, whether it be clover or um, several different varieties I try to create the most diverse fucking ecosystem I possibly could
3: so this land here is going to be for hemp yes yes
0: but I know that this particular area needs some regenerative uh, work into both the biochemistry and the biomass of 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 the paddocks themselves
3: how important is is it to get that right for hemp oh it's important for any
0: plant Um, hemp itself it, it actually can grow just about anywhere The question is what kind of quality you want to grow. Mm. But I love it. I think it's a fantastic crop. It can be used for building products. It can be used for food. It can be used for medicine. The applications are, well, we haven't even discovered all the different applications yet. For example, one of the big things I've been talking to with a lot of the farmers, dairy farmers around here, is the old fart tax, carbon credits. There's been a lot of studies done that say that one acre of hemp, can sequester the same amount of carbon as one acre of Oregon pine. It takes Oregon pine 30 years to sequester that carbon. It takes 120 days for hemp to do the same thing. Now, as legislation comes in in this country, in terms of how that's going to play out, I think hemp is going to be one of the best things that a dairy farmer ever came across. If he can offset his carbon credits that way, well, why wouldn't you put a hectare or two hectares or a paddock in hemp each year as you rotate it around your farm because it also actually has the ability to pull out heavy metals and other bad aspects of soil that you don't want in there.
3: Were the farmers you talked to quite interested in looking at hemp when it comes available?
0: Yeah, I'm kind of lucky. I'm a triple amputee. So anytime I come up with an idea, they, they love to come around and just hear it because they think, oh, you're already mad for a start. <laughs> but yeah, no, they, they really have, actually. In fact, each year um, I've got several different groups of local farmers that have come around and had a look, had a talk about what we're doing. They're interested. So what I'm mostly trying to do at the moment is actually create a seed bank in this particular environment So the seed that we got originally was not from this particular area. Uh, As any farmer will know, anywhere you grow crops, you've got certain ones that will do very well or not so well, depending on the actual environment that they're in. So for the last two years now, we've grown in in a tunnel house, which is 15 meters by 14 meters, upwards of 200 plants. And the ones that are the most successful, meaning like, for example, two years ago, we got hit heavy by mold, botrytis. And out of that crop, there was two plants that were completely unaffected by it. So that's the seed I saved. Those are the that's seeds seed you want. I sowed the following year. The rest of the seed we were able to use and process for crackers and nether bits, but it's about the genetic makeup of the plant that is the most important thing. And that again also takes time. So as I'm waiting for my paddocks, hopefully to get to a point that they'll be exceptionally well to be able to sow in there. By that time, I should have some seed stock that is exceptionally suited mm. for this particular environment. If I can accomplish that, then I can prove to all the other local farmers and whatnot that I've got a viable alternative to whatever else they're doing. So it's a, it's a work in progress, but it's, there's, there's a goal,
3: there's a point to it. And you've been talking to a hemp grower I've interviewed in the past, uh, Mac, yep. from uh, South Otago. Yeah, and in fact, that's where we got our seed from, and that's
0: how we've got our start. It's a, it's a long saga. I think it's something that a lot of us have thought about, and few of us have put the amount of time and effort into it. Uh, my experience tells me that hemp was always... In fact, if, if it wasn't for hemp, the British Royal Navy would have never actually gone around the planet and conquered as much as they did. If you think about it, all the sailcloth, all the ropes, all the caulking, everything about it... In the Americas, as colonies, if you were a landowner, you were required to grow a certain acreage of hemp, and it was a necessity. We've gone away in terms of that to other products, so forest industry, the petrochemical industry, but in terms of dairy farmers here, it'd be very simple to offset their carbon credits in hemp. So if I can produce the seed, if I can then come down and sow it, and if then I can turn it back in
3: for them, that's my job. I've done my job. I guess in the future, there is going to be a need for farm advisors who have hemp knowledge. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, for a no-legged one arm guy, that sounds like a good job. <laughs> <laughs>
3: How did you become a triple
0: amputee? It was all due to frostbite, actually. I got caught out in a uh, quite a large storm 14 years ago. So I was working up in a camp up in Greenland, got caught out in a storm for three days and three nights, somehow managed to make it back. But we're still smiling, we're still kicking, we're still laughing, and I, I could sit back and do nothing the rest of my life and just claim that I'm disabled and I can't do anything. Hmm. And Kath and I had a talk. She says, well, what, what is something else you'd rather do? And I says, well, you know what? Industrial hemp. I think that's, that's going to be one of the key things in the future. I think it's something we can give back to the rest of society. And so we've put our heart and soul on it. That's why we're doing it. I I can tell you this, honestly, I couldn't think of anything better to do.
3: (laughs) And I do mean that. You could mix hemp, I guess, with uh, bioresin and produce a really strong, light material that could be used for a prosthetic arm or leg.
0: And legs, yep. Hemp fiber is actually one of the strongest fibers, naturally, that we know of. So the socket is what uh, my stumps fit into, and that's, that's the most important aspect of it. So to paint you a picture, I've got my knees, but I, my legs are cut off just about halfway down uh, my shin bone, okay, Half, halfway down the leg. So the most important aspect is the fit between my stump and that socket, all right? It doesn't matter what kind of high-tech foot you put on the bottom of it or anything like that, if the fit is not good. You're not mobile. And my arm right now is made out of carbon fiber. Now, if I could actually grow the hemp and use the fiber and then put resin through it and make my own arm, technically speaking, that means I actually grew my own arm back. So I think that makes me almost like Superman.
3: (laughs) I guess hemp will potentially grow really well on dairy farms, but one of the issues is processing at the moment, isn't it?
0: Yep, and that's that's slowly coming into effect. There's now finally a decorticator. And what a decorticator does is it actually strips the fiber off of the, the stem and the stalk and then it chips the inner part, which is the actual herd you make into to hemp creed. But it's early days here. So the infrastructure is actually the most important aspect of it at the moment. And then also the legislation is equally as important as well too. For example, I believe the market's there. We just can't reach the market at the moment because of regulation. So one thing I tell to other people that are trying to go into something like this is you got to have a lot of patience.
3: Yes, yes. Now, Jake, um, before you lost your legs and arm, what were you doing on the ice? Uh, I
0: did a, a couple different things. I was a heavy equipment operator, so bulldozers, cranes, whatever's going on. Also in charge of making the landing strips for the C-130s to get in and out. I was also a utility technician, UT, which means you're basically in charge of all the infrastructure and making sure it's well-maintained. So, for example, the heat. Now, if the generators go down, you've got it approximately in the wintertime four hours to get the generators going again or you're all dead. So you want to make sure that those are functioning properly properly. And it was also very fascinating. You've got to recreate, or not recreate because you do it every year, basically a town which is then supportive of all the scientific research that goes on. A lot of people don't realize that the South Pole has been deemed pretty much the numero uno, number one spot for celestial observation. So as, as a young fellow and as someone who is just kind of a, regular Joe just driving a big bulldozer and whatnot, you're having lunch with some of the most preeminent high-energy astrophysicists every day. And it's really nice to be around those guys. Some of them can't tie their shoes, so that's part of our job. But it was, it was fantastic. It, it became a family. We did it long enough where you really got to know the people that you worked with, and we accomplished the jobs and the work that we set out to do, whether it be ice core drilling for upper atmospheric studies or high-energy astrophysics trying to find a neutrino which can pass through the core of the planet that triangulates (laughs) the original start of the Big Bang. I mean, it's a wide spectrum of of different things. There was even NASA used to come up with robotics all the time to test them out, both in the North and the South, to see if they do well at Mars. And so far, I think we helped them out.
3: (laughs) Do some of those... Skills come in handy here?
0: Yeah, I definitely think so. One, first and foremost, is just thinking outside the box. All right? If you can open your mind and be like, ah, oh, let's try something different and see how we go, and are open to making mistakes, but learning from those mistakes and carrying on, I think that applies to pretty much
3: anything in life, honestly. Kathy turns up, and as it happens, she's also spent time at the polls. I was a garbologist. What's that? <laughs> I took out the trash.
6: <laughs> it was a huge recycling program that they have. Uh, part of the Antarctic Treaty is you pack in, pack out. So whatever each country has brought there, they have to take it away.
3: How long did you do that for? Since 96.
6: Since 96, off and on, over the years. Yeah. Do you miss it? I miss it, but look where we're at. Yeah. I mean... it's For me,
0: I, I miss it tremendously, but in my mind you're living in the past and you're living in pain so yes I would love to go back specifically for a winter at the South Pole that was the most incredible otherworldly beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire lifetime that was fantastic we actually met at the South Pole most people don't realize this but it's a really good place to pick up chicks you know (laughs) there's only four of them you got one chance you know (laughs) We're still together 20 years later.
6: (laughs) And as they say, the odds are good, but the goods are odd.
4: (laughs) North and South Pole veterans and now industrial hemp growers, Jake Gibbons and Kathy Blum. To see their hemp plants and lots of other great photos from today's story, you can go to our web page. Just type RNZ Country Life into your browser and you'll find us. Well, that's it for this week. Keep warm, kia mahana
1: and kia pai na ra whakata. Have a great weekend. Catch you next time.
7: Botox Cosmetic, auto botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.